Good morning. My name is Josh Benner from Christian Bible Church. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Um, I secretly now hope that the alarm or a bell does ring just so I can say for once in my lifetime, the bell doesn't dismiss you, I dismiss you. We'll see what happens. John chapter 20 is where Pastor Trey and I will be this morning. And before I get started, I would just like to sincerely thank everybody who has helped and worked to make today possible. Um, from people who have helped with music, to sound, to setting up chairs. Um, a lot of work, PowerPoint, bulletins, a lot of work goes into this. And so sincerely appreciative of everybody who has put in the work. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 is where we'll be this morning. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Most people believe that there's a heaven. And most faiths have a concept of a heavenly hope or a sense of greater enlightenment or an ethereal paradise, which is the ultimate aim of the faithful. In the final chapters of the Bible, heaven is depicted as a new heaven, and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. A perfect place where the faithful in Christ will live with Christ for eternity, and a place where there will be no death, or sorrow, or sickness, or pain, or sin. And our ultimate hope for this heaven and new earth is the gospel where we will live in heaven as resurrected people. And the reason why we have a hope of an eternally resurrected body is because on the first Easter, we have a resurrected Savior. In John 11, we learn of a man named Lazarus, whom Jesus has befriended with his two sisters, Martha and Mary. Jesus gets word that Lazarus is ill and near death. By the time Jesus gets to Lazarus, the passage tells us that he had been deceased and in the tomb for four days. We see a scene of mourning. The sisters of Lazarus are devastated that their brother has died. And as you read the story, you see that even Jesus wept. When Jesus arrives, Martha greets Jesus, and in her grief expresses belief that had Jesus gotten there sooner, he could have intervened and maybe even saved Lazarus. In John chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha believes that, but she doesn't quite understand. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
In the first century, a common view among Jewish people was in a future resurrection. Martha has a future hope of a resurrection, yet we see that this isn't what Jesus is talking about. Verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is not expressing an abstract idea. It's not some distant thought to make us feel better. But Jesus is personally saying that he is the resurrection. And that he is the reason why people can have hope of a resurrection. In John 11, Jesus dramatically raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And in that, points forward to his own resurrection and to the resurrection hope that all who believe in the Lord Jesus enjoy. And so with that background, we come to John chapter 20 on the first Easter morning. Verse 1 says, Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The Apostle John only mentions Mary here. The other Gospels include that there were other women with Mary. Mary Magdalene had also been present at the cross when Jesus died, so she was a witness to the crucified Lord, and she's a witness to the empty tomb. It's also noteworthy that all four Gospels mention that the empty tomb was discovered by women. Now, for us, that detail might not be so striking, but it is when you consider that the Bible wasn't written this week. That this is an event that happened almost 2,000 years ago in a time and place where women were second-class citizens. And this time and place, a woman couldn't even give admissible testimony. Yet the Gospels are unanimous that it was women who discovered the tomb, a detail that would make no sense to lie about. The Gospels say that it was discovered by women because it really happened, and that is who really discovered it. At verse 2, we see that Mary sees the empty tomb and does not automatically assume a resurrection. Her first thought is grave rot. She goes to get the disciples. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. The text mentions Peter and the other disciple. That other disciple is the Apostle John, but he never names himself in his gospel. Verses 3 and 4. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So Peter and John take off running. Apparently, John runs faster. While John gets to the tomb first, Peter goes inside first. Verse 5, from John's perspective. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. When Jesus was buried after his death on the cross, they wrapped his body in linen cloths. There weren't elaborate coffins in the first century for the average person, and so Jesus' body was wrapped. Verse 6 focuses on Peter. Then Simon Peter came following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. John might have won the race to the tomb, but Peter goes in first. It's significant that John mentions the linen cloths. This again points to the historical truthfulness of the resurrection. 
Had the tomb been hit by grave robbers, there would be no reason to go to the trouble of stripping off the burial shrouds that Jesus had been wrapped in. It's also a contrast between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of Lazarus that we've already talked about. In John 11:44, it talks of the resurrection of Lazarus and says, The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. But Jesus' burial cloth is in the tomb. Verse 7, And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. I'll just say this. If you currently have a hamper at your house full of clean clothes that you haven't put away, Jesus rose from the dead, and the first thing he did was fold his laundry. <laughs> the fact that the face cloth is folded is further evidence against grave robbery. Who's going to neatly fold up a face cloth that had been on the head of a dead person? It's quite the scene. John switches back to his perspective in verse 8. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. I like the fact that John reminds us that he actually got to the tomb first. For all we know, he held it over Peter's head for the rest of their lives. John says that he went into the empty tomb and saw and believed. Now, there is a question over what exactly John believed. Did he believe Mary's report that the tomb was empty? Possible, but given that after the resurrection, John's gospel has this theme of seeing and believing, I take it to mean that John believed that Jesus was alive. But... John is quick to point out that regardless of what it was that he believed, he hadn't yet made sense of it all. Verse 9. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. At the beginning of our time, I talked of the story of Lazarus and how Martha, the sister of Lazarus, believed in a future hope of resurrection. There are passages in the Old Testament which talk about resurrection. It's not a new idea in the New Testament. In the book of Job, we see a story about a man who suffered greatly, lost everything in the world he has of value. In spite of his terrible suffering and anguish, Job says in chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. So Job believes in a living, redeeming God, and that after he has died, after my skin has been thus destroyed, he points to a resurrection when he says, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Really a very striking passage. In Ezekiel 37, the prophet is given a vision of a valley of dry bones, verses beginning in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel is asked if the dry bones can live. He expresses faith that the Lord knows and is powerful. Verses 7 and 8. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, 
bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. And if I were to continue reading, the passage talks of how God would endow those people with his spirit. So you have a vision of bones that are dry and decaying and rotting that the Lord will give new flesh, life, and spirit to. So it is a passage which points to a future resurrection hope, but it does not specifically refer to a resurrected Savior. And there are other Old Testament passages to which we could point. In 1 Kings 17, the prophet Elijah raises the son of a widow. In 2 Kings 4, the prophet Elisha raises the son of a Shunammite woman from the dead. But then you have Jesus. He's the light of the world. He's the promised king from the line of David. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. He's the one to whom the prophets pointed. He does signs and miracles. He lives a perfect life. He displays the divine glory. He's the greatest thing that has ever happened in the world. And then he dies, crucified on a Roman cross. John tells us that he believed, but he hadn't understood. Resurrection is an Old Testament idea. But on Good Friday, when Jesus died, what would have been unthinkable was that the promised Son of God, the King of Kings, would die and then rise again in the middle of human history. But then it happened. I think of the great plot twists in films. You see Star Wars and learn that Darth Vader is the father of Luke Skywalker, and it changes how the whole rest of the franchise is viewed. You watch a movie like the 1999 classic, The Sixth Sense. At the end of the film, you learn that Bruce Willis's character actually died in the beginning of the movie, and it changes how you see every scene in the film. In The Wizard of Oz, you learn that Dorothy, everything she saw in Oz was a dream. At the end of Frozen, you learn that Hans was actually a bad guy. The plot twist of human history is that the Son of God would come into the world and die for the sins of the world and rise from the dead for the redemption of all who believe in him. And that changes everything. That changes how you understand everything in the Old Testament. In Christ, we see that a resurrection is the hope that all can have through him. The resurrection hope for the people of God is still in the future. But the proof and the grounding of our hope in the resurrection was seen in Christ on the first Easter. Our world has a lot of different views of heaven. But we need to think not just about heaven, but also about the promise we have of a resurrection that is promised through Jesus. Because with the resurrection of Jesus, we see more than just heaven. Some ethereal and hard to envision paradise or spiritual realm. With the resurrection of Jesus, we are pointed to a physical reality. That Jesus died. Deaths we've seen in our families, among friends, loved ones who have gone before, the goodbyes we've had to say, the terrible reality that is death. But on the first Easter, the world was pointed to its true hope. Again, it's easy for our society to cheapen heaven and talk as if everyone goes there, regardless of if they believe Jesus or not. But the real question is, what do you do with a resurrected Jesus? Heaven isn't whatever we say it is. It's a place that Jesus invites us to eternally experience in a new heaven and a new earth as a resurrected person who will never die. 
And because Jesus died for our sins, and since he rose from the dead, it is he alone and his gospel alone which brings eternal life in him. To Martha, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that is the question with which I will close. Do you believe this? Pastor Trey Sheffer, a pastor at a Grace Bible Church. And thank you, Josh. Excellent job. We're going to pick up the text starting in verse 11. So if you'd like to return uh, there in your Bible or in your bulletin, uh, John, John's account uh, of the resurrection and now uh, the visible presence of Jesus. His account continues in verse 11. Before we look at the text, I want to share a, a true story that I ran across this week. There was a, a story about a man who woke up in an unusual place, in fact, a startling place. He woke up in the morgue after having been wrongly pronounced dead. As the story goes, the man was mistakenly taken for dead and taken to the morgue by a hasty ambulance staff after passing out from intoxication at a party. Now, of course, at some point, the man awoke from his stupor, and as you can only imagine, arose in a panic and started screaming for help. Well, eventually the staff opened the door, figured out what in the world was going, uh, going on, and returned the resurrected man uh, sort of onto the streets and let him go. But the story doesn't end there, because the man, for whatever reason, thought that he should go back to the party where he died. And his friends, of course, were talking about what had happened, and they were mourning him. And so he knocked on the door of the party, and one of his friends who had seen him die opened the door and was so shocked that he fainted right on the spot. You know, you can only imagine what it must have been like for this man's friend, mourning the death of his friend one minute and then seeing him at the door the next. Well, it must have been something like, on a lesser scale, how Mary is about to feel as we return to our text this morning. With John and Peter having left the tomb, the focus of John's account once again returns to Mary, who, after telling Peter and John what she had witnessed, apparently returns to the tomb. Let's take a look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped in to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. And so with the men gone, Mary is left alone, weeping, overwhelmed with sorrow, still believing that Jesus' body had been stolen. And like John before her, she sort of leans over, she stoops in to take a look at the tomb for herself. And when she does, she's greeted with two unexpected visitors, right? Two angels sitting where the body had been laying. But before she could say anything to them, in verse 13, 
they asked of her a rather pointed question. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Friends, the, the question of the angel is no insensitive question. It's reasonable that she would be crying if what she had assumed was true, that Jesus was still dead. And the angels ask her this question, and Jesus will repeat it here shortly because they want her to realize that the only tears necessary at this point are tears of joy because Jesus had risen from the dead. Well, seeing two angels in the grave uh, was not shocking enough. Notice in verse 14, Mary must maybe sense someone behind her. Maybe she hears something behind her. She's stooping into the tomb. And so in verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And so she's stooping over. She's looking into the tomb. She sees the angels and maybe she hears a noise behind her. For whatever reason, she, she sort of gets out of the tomb and she turns around and she sees a man. But the odd thing is, is that John tells us, we know that it's actually Jesus, but Mary, well, she doesn't recognize him at first. Notice in verse 15, Jesus asks her the very same question of the angels. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? You would think she would get the point, right? No need to weep. I'm alive. He says, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And now we have a beautiful tender seat upon us in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. For whatever reason, Jesus calling her by her name, a very personal touch, dispelled any further thought of him being a gardener. No, this man knew who she was, and this man was indeed Christ. For whatever reason, a, a simple name, and she had eyes to see this was Christ. And her verbal response, my teacher, is followed by a physical response. She wraps her arms around Christ in a tender clinging of one whose loved one has come back from the dead. And Jesus gives her a message for the man. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. You know, on the outset, as we read verse 17, it may seem that Jesus might be a, a bit unusually harsh. He says, do not cling to me. But, but really, in the Greek, it's more something like, don't keep on clinging to me. 
instead of no, don't, don't cling to me. Mary obviously was clinging to him. It's likely that she was down on her knees even clinging to his feet. And it's something like this. I don't know if you've ever seen a video of uh, a soldier. And the soldier uh, returns home from war. But the soldier is surprising, say, his daughter or his wife. And they get it on film, right? Maybe the daughter is at school and she's doing schoolwork and the dad walks in and she sees him. What does she do? Her eyes are full of joy and surprise. She can't believe it's her dad. And she runs to him and she throws her arms around him and she embraces him and she won't let him go. It's a tender, beautiful scene. That's, in a sense, what is happening here. Jesus is not rebuking this tender act of adoration. He's simply telling her, okay, you can give up the bear hug now, right? She was hugging him and clinging to him as if she would never see him again. And for all she knew, maybe she wouldn't. But Jesus knew that she would see him again. He knew that he would not ascend to the Father for 40 days. And so he gently says, Mary, there will be other opportunities to see me. But now I have a job for you to do. And the scene ends with Mary doing her job. She goes to the disciple. She gives her eyewitness account. I have seen the Lord. And she gives the men his message in full. And so ends our text for this morning. I'd like to close by thinking together about the responses of the disciples and how we should respond to this reality. Friends, what should we do having seen and heard the account of the empty tomb and the risen Christ? I would suggest that we're, there are three responses from the disciples that we should mimic this morning. Three Easter responses. And the first is quite simple. Friends, we should trust in Jesus as our personal Savior. The first response worth mimicking came to us back in Joshua's passage in verse 8. You can look there on the bulletin if you'd like. In verse 8, John stooping in and he sees the linen cloth. And there's a phrase that is often repeated throughout the book of John. It says that John saw and he did what? He believed. John saw and believed. He saw the empty tomb and he believed that Christ rose again. This word in the Gospel of John, to believe, is one of the great themes that we see throughout the entire book. It is John's appropriate response to Jesus, to his perfect life lived for your sinful one, to his death paying for your sins and mine on the cross, and for his resurrection. How should we respond to this Jesus that John gives us? John says 98 times, believe, believe, believe. You can't miss it. In fact, if you were to keep reading in the Bible in this chapter, in verse 30 and 31, John gives us what is a summary statement. He says, let me tell you why I've written everything that I have about Christ and about the miracles that he did. Here's the reason why I wrote to you this gospel. And I quote, so that you may believe that, Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, eternal life, in his name. So John says that believing in Jesus 
as God's son, that he died for your sins, that he rose again, believing leads to eternal life. So friends, if you want eternal life, what do you have to do? You have to believe, right? You have to believe. And so first and foremost, this response to it for everybody at Easter time is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's very son, who died for your sins and rose again, and as a result, be given eternal life. But friends, let me offer a warning. Let me offer a warning. Lest you think that the believing that John speaks of is merely intellectual assent to truth. For the word believe in John's gospel means not only to believe in Jesus, but to lean on Jesus, to personally, a decision that you must make to trust in this Jesus, to lean on him and nothing else to save you from your sins, not in a, being a good person, not in some sort of religious activity, no, those things are, are, will not suffice. You must trust completely in what Christ has done for you to be born again and to be saved. I'll illustrate this with a well-known illustration. There was a famous tightrope walker several years ago by the name of Charles Blondin. And he illustrates the difference here between intellectually believing something to be true and actually putting your personal trust or faith in that something. So as the story goes, he stretched out a tightrope across a portion of Niagara Falls. And of course, he carefully walks across the tightrope and the crowds gathered and as he made it across, they cheered. For that's an amazing thing. And as they cheered, he then asked the crowd a question. Friends, he said, who thinks I, I can walk across the tightrope with somebody on my shoulders. And the crowds cheered and they raised their hands and they said, we believe that you can do it. They believed in one sense that he could. But then the tightrope walker asked another question. The man said, okay, who will get on my shoulders? Now that's a very different question, isn't it? Because it's one thing to believe that he can do it, but it's, a, it's, a, it's another thing entirely for you them, someone personally, to get on the shoulders of another and to trust your very life into that man's hands. Well, no one wanted to. As the story goes, there was a young boy in the crowd and he raised his hand. And the young boy said, I believe you can do it and I'll go. Well, the young boy was the, the man's son. Daddy, I trust you. And as the story goes, he hopped on his dad's shoulders and away he went and he got a ride across Niagara Falls. Friends, the boy believed with a biblical faith, with his intellect and his will. He completely trusted that his dad could get him across the great divide. Friends, the divide between sinful humanity and a holy God is infinitely greater than Niagara Falls. And riding on the back of Jesus, as it were, trusting personally in his death, in his resurrection for your sins, is the only way to cross that divide. And so I'll leave you with this question. Have you believed, not just intellectually, but personally, have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? 
That's what John did. He saw and he believed. Well, I am guessing in a crowd this size that, and I'm hoping, that many of us have done that. That many of us have trusted in Christ as our Savior. So what is there in this text uh, for us? We've already done that. Well, uh, let me just point out a couple other responses as we draw near uh, to the end of this sermon. Not only must we trust in Christ as our personal Savior, but we see in the response of Mary that then after trusting in Jesus, we should cling to him as our treasure. We should cling to him as the great treasure of our lives. The story between Jesus and Mary is very personal. It's very tender, right? Jesus calls her by name. He knows her. Her eyes are open. She sees him and she loves him. And she responds to the one who has won her heart with unabashed adoration. She clings to him. She doesn't want to let him go. It's like she's saying, I've lost you once. I don't want to lose you again. I would suggest that this scene between Mary and Jesus reveals that Jesus is Mary's greatest treasure. She loves Christ. And friends, once we trust in Christ for eternal life, he becomes our treasure as well. That's the very nature of saving faith. For saving faith, a saving faith is a faith that leads to treasuring Jesus, not just trusting him. The pastor and author John Piper puts it well. He says, it is not saving faith to confess Christ as simply being true. Saving faith receives Christ as a treasure. When God is our deepest pleasure, we display him as our highest treasure. So brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are here this morning and you have trusted in Jesus completely, let's make Christ not just our hope for eternity, but let's make him our treasure. Let's cling to his feet every day, not just this day, but every day. Cling to him, long for him, love him. And let me just ask you, friends, if you have a sense of believing. Yeah, I, I, I believe that Jesus rose again. I believe that he's God's son. But there is no love in your heart. There is no affection for Jesus. It could very well be that your faith is not a saving faith. We trust in Christ and we treasure Christ. And then there's a third response. And it's in the very command that Jesus gives to Mary. The final response is one that Jesus tells Mary to do. And in all four of the Gospels, in one way, shape, or form, Jesus tells all disciples to do this, which is simply to share the good news, right? It is good news that Christ died for our sins and rose from this, the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, defeating Satan, defeating the world. He offers us a living hope and a future resurrection, wherever Josh is, a future resurrection. This is good news, and we shall not keep it to ourselves. A man and his five-year-old son were driving down an old country dirt road, and they passed the cemetery, and they noticed, the young boy noticed at the cemetery, there was a large pile of dirt next to a freshly dug grave, and the little boy thought for a moment, and he said, look, Dad, look, one of them actually got out. <laughs> Friends, the good news of Resurrection Sunday is that one of them actually got out. 
Christ actually got out. He arose from the dead. And it's wonderful news. We must share it with the Lord. Would you pray with me now? And we'll close with a song. Let's pray together.